that brings fresh significance to the words, let all things be done decently and in order. So now they have been done in their proper order. Now you may turn to Luke 11. And I'll mention to you that uh, the experience I had in connection with that song, going through a, a difficult season in my life, I was about 25 at the time, and really wondering what was the path forward. This was before I had come down on definitely being a member of a Reformed church, so I was definitely leaning in that direction. I had friends going in different uh, directions in life as well, and I remember specifically being all by myself at a campsite somewhere in Washington. It was raining, and I already said it's Washington, and hearing a song by Mary Barrett. Some of you, I imagine, have heard of Mary Barrett. She set classic Christian hymns to music and did it wonderfully and is worth seeking out. But her last album, which concludes, I believe it concludes with that song, she wrote knowing that she had what appeared to be terminal cancer. And she did pass very, very shortly after that. She was young. So the, the knowledge, she was maybe 40 years old. So the knowledge of seeing those things in connection with the reality of what she was facing um, and to hear that she passed with joy has stuck with me. And I hope that when we sing these songs, we let at times, let memory have its function, which is to bring the past into the present and to feel something that. Now that has a tie-in with this evening's sermon because this sermon is on two different parables and they share a related theme. They are both about the need for persistence in prayer and the obstacles that sometimes stop us in our tracks from doing so. So let's hear the word of God beginning in Luke 11 and then also another parable in Luke 18. Beginning at verse five of Luke 11. And he said to them, which of you has a friend and who will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And then Luke 18. Verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, 
Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Let's ask the Lord to bless our consideration together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. In your providence, you brought us here tonight. You know that of all the churches throughout the world who are preaching on a multitude of things, this is what we need. And we ask that you would please incline us to respond by faith, Preserve us from error. Lord, please shine your face upon us and give us your joy. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Of all the things that Jesus teaches on in the New Testament, prayer takes up a surprising portion. For all the things he doesn't teach on, he says quite a bit about prayer. But then, when you examine what he has to say about prayer, it might surprise you where the emphasis falls. Sometimes, perhaps, people expect the teaching on prayer to be primarily about form and content. What are the things that we ought to say? When do we pray? Is there a certain pattern? Can you give me a book of prayers that I can read aloud on every topic imaginable? Jesus does provide a form. Just a little bit before our passage, the disciples ask him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he teaches them what we now call the Lord's Prayer, but now it's your prayer. It's the prayer that every Christian on a daily basis will draw from. It's like the skeleton. And we take the the meat of our own experience in life and we place it on those bones. All the issues of life are contained in the Lord's Prayer. But on the whole, Jesus does not spend most of his time teaching us about the form and the content of prayer. Rather, he spends most of his time speaking about the posture of the heart in prayer. That is, sometimes, as one commentator put it, we look for technology, the technology of prayer. Give me the tools. But he is pointing out something much broader. How do you regard the Lord? How do you regard the Lord? And how do you understand your own heart right now? Because if those things are in a proper relationship, then prayer, to a large degree, takes care of itself. It's been said by, I forget which of the Puritans, that you prepare the prayer, not the prayer. That if the one praying is prepared, the prayer will be just fine. God will be pleased with it. It may not be the most eloquent thing you ever heard, but the Lord, by his spirit, can interpret all of that. And so Jesus puts the emphasis on issues of the heart. And here in this passage, he's focusing on obstacles to persisting in prayer. And I put it to you as a question then. Have you ever begun to pray for something and then you left off from that prayer, maybe in that very moment or maybe as a habit, before getting that thing which you were seeking? Why? Why did you leave off? There could have been any number of reasons. Maybe it's that God revealed his will very clearly by bringing something to pass that showed you, no, that was not his will. Lord, are you calling me to marry that person? And then they get married to somebody else. Now you know, no, God is not calling you to marry that person. You can stop that prayer. It's done. But then in other areas of life, it's not that God has made it clear what his will is, but sometimes we grow fatigued. Sometimes we doubt the Lord's willingness to answer. This could be in the matter of salvation of yourself or a loved one. You used to pray frequently for that loved one. 
and now they hardly ever come to mind, but it's not because they're any closer to the kingdom. Why did you stop? Or it may be that you have been praying about your own sanctification or that of somebody else for quite a while. Why did you leave off? You say, well, the situation hasn't changed. I've been praying that prayer for 10 years. My mouth, I still struggle in the same way I did back then. But have you been called to persistent prayer? And what does it say about how you view the Lord if you don't continue? And so this evening, we're going to see that Christ in these parables, he diagnoses three different obstacles, three different obstacles that come in the way of how we view the Lord when we pray. I'll name each of them as we come to them. But first, see the point is laid out very plainly, Luke 18, verse 1. It says that Jesus told us these parables to the effect that you ought always to pray and not lose heart. It's wonderful when the thesis is in the text itself. What is God calling you to tonight? Don't lose heart in your prayer. And Jesus would not have spent significant time on this. And the writers of the New Testament, led by the Spirit, would not have devoted significant content to this in the relatively brief Gospels if they didn't know that we have a struggle with this. Some of us more than others, but all of us to some degree. We pray and we lose heart. So this is the first obstacle that we encounter, the first way that we view God when we come to him in prayer that will lead us to not persist. And it's that we look at the Lord as though he is going to be annoyed or upset with our prayer. Not all of you have that same struggle to the same degree. Understand, many do. And this is especially the focus in verses 5 through 10 of Luke 11. Picture it here. The idea of going to your friend at midnight, and your friend is having beautiful slumber. And you have to appreciate in the ancient context, this is a peasant home. Jesus is speaking to largely poor people. The homes are very close together. A typical home consisted of one room. Sometimes it had two stories. The animals were down below. Everybody else was up top. You get the heat of the animals coming up to to warm you. This is ancient technology. And in that situation, all the family is sleeping in a single room. So for you to go and wake up that neighbor is going to wake up everybody. And you feel like you're such a bother. Now, it's not preposterous that there's no bread here because typically in the ancient world, bread was made fresh every day. They don't have refrigerators. They don't have preservatives. Bread is fresh every day. And here the neighbor is going and wondering, can I get this? But on the other hand, should I even be going? I should have provided for myself. I should have bought extra. I should have anticipated somebody was going to come here. I'm a big bother. He's going to be upset with me. I'm disturbing the peace of everyone in the household. And do you not sometimes, have you never felt that way, that if you're going to the Lord with this thing that you've prayed for and prayed for, that it is a bother to him? Like the very fact that he hasn't answered shows that he's upset. Or maybe the enemy at that point calls out some big display of all of your faults and failings and says, you're not worthy. You don't have a right. And so verse 5 rings in your ears. You hear as if God is saying, do not bother me. The door is now shut. You missed your window. Back when you were a more decent person before you committed that sin, I would have welcomed you. You could have come for bread then. Now that you committed that sin, no bread. Go home. Or in verse 5, it says, my kids are with me. And the implication there is that you feel like you're an outsider. You're not part of the family. You aren't supposed to be here asking for this. God cares for his own, but you're not a part of it. 
If that is you, then in those times when you feel that way, Christ is urging you, look upon the Father as ready to receive you. You never have a right to presume the Lord is not willing. He gets to decide for himself. And Christ is a faithful representation of the Father to us. And hear what Christ says, verse 9, I tell you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now that does not mean that the Lord will grant everything that we ask the moment that we ask for it. But in terms of the attitude that we have and the attitude the Lord has, we are to understand he is ready to hear. He's willing. It's not in this passage trying to tell us when he'll answer, but the readiness that he has to hear our prayer. Compare that to what it says in Hebrews 4, verse 16. Hebrews 4, 16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Come boldly to the throne of grace. And maybe you've already thought of another passage of Scripture in the book of Esther. We have Queen Esther, and she wants to go make a petition. She wants to submit a request to the Syrian king. But she is afraid to do so because she knows that under Assyrian law, if the king doesn't want you to walk in when you walk in, he will have you put to death. And he's already shown with his prior wife that he can replace wives. He has no problem with that. This is very much opposite to that. Go boldly into the throne room of grace. Grace is by definition the favor of God shown towards people who have demerited it. Not just neutral, demerited. They've done what's wrong. The throne room of grace full of grace, not the throne room of 50% grace. For those who are in Christ, it is a throne room of grace. If you're coming earnestly, now is the time to come. If you come sincerely, you are welcome. All the welcome mat says is faith, question mark, desire, question mark, enter, and you go in. And so we cannot let the idea that God is upset with us. He may be, he may be upset with you in the category of disciplining you as a father. He still wants you to pray. What parent here, what parent here, and I get ahead of myself, is going to say, well, because I'm upset with you, I'm not going to give you the things you need. That's a bad parent. That's a bad parent who ought to be ashamed. God may be upset with you, but he desires you to come with your need. And that's the first obstacle, thinking that he is going to be upset and not listen to us. The second is like it, it's related, but this is the focus of verses 11 through 13 and our second main obstacle. In verses 11 through 13, the focus is on viewing God as indifferent or even cruel to our human needs. It's not just that he's upset or annoyed, but maybe he doesn't care about our tangible needs. Things like, I need food, I need clothing, my family needs these things. I have other people who have these needs as well, as well as our spiritual needs. In the context, he'll, he'll go on to connect it to the Holy Spirit. But listen to what Jesus says in verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? That's not rhetorical, that's real. Which one of you would do that? Confess it later and we'll report you. That's a horrible person. That's a horrible person. But do we not sometimes treat God as if he has a criminal negligence towards us? By the fact that we stop asking, we just assume he wouldn't take care of those things. And all of us, I'm sure, 
I'm confident all of us have done this many times where our, you know, we're conf confronted with a situation where there's a very real and present pressing need upon us. Oh no, I blew it. And when, you know, I made a mistake and all these people are going to be harmed because I didn't put this stuff in at the right time. All the orders are wrecked or these people won't be able to go on their trip because I blew it in some way. And our thought is not, Lord, you are sovereign. I'm asking you to work good through this, whatever that is, and give me the heart to receive it. Lord, I don't deserve it. Our first thought is, I'm going to fix it. And it's, I'm going to fix it typically because it, it has not become habitual to believe that God is for us. If you believe God is for you and he's powerful and he's interested in the needs of, you, of this life, then you go to him. Verse 13 if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, don't misunderstand this text. When he says, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit? It's not as if he is saying, God is interested in spiritual things, but he doesn't care about the very real hunger that somebody might have. Or how are they going to help their kids through incredibly difficult circumstances as they're transitioning from youth to adulthood and all the financial, emotional, all that that goes with it. Oh, God only worries about the Holy Spirit, but all that other stuff is yours. This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. An argument from the greater to the lesser. That means if God would give you God himself, then what else won't he give you? If God is willing to give you the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, take a moment and just savor that. Who is the Holy Spirit? What is this precious gift that right now we've had just the tiniest taste of, but in the ages to come, we shall discover such wonder in? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, is God, and plays the role of communicating to you the treasures of the relationship shared by Father and Son. He searches the deep things and communicates to you all the benefits that are in Jesus Christ. Will you always struggle with your sin? If you are in Jesus Christ, the answer is no. Not only will you not struggle with it, you will be righteous like Christ is righteous in the age to come. And think of the fellowship that you'll have with others in that holiness, whereas right now, often, even among sincere Christians, it can be hard to have fellowship, to find the words, to build one another up. If he gives you the Holy Spirit forever, then why should we doubt that he'll take care of our needs? Now, again, these parables are not in this setting telling us everything about God's timing or why he withholds. But we have to be careful that when he withholds, we don't judge his motives. No, well, because I know why he, he didn't give to me. Jesus says, when you look on God, look on him as a compassionate father. The final obstacle that these parables lay before us is in verse 1 through 8 of Luke 18, if you look there with me. In this section, the parable is focusing on the way that we look at the Lord at times. I don't think many of us would say this, but it's implied in our feelings if we search our hearts. I'll put my hand up to this as well. We look at the Lord as being indifferent to our moral and spiritual concerns, our moral and our spiritual concerns. So at other times, we're focused on, you know, he's not providing for the tangible things, but what about our moral and our spiritual concerns, things related to, say, our sanctification? 
or to the injustices that exist in the world, particularly as they are done against the people of God or particular individuals in the church. And I'll just state it plainly. Do not be shocked when you experience injustice. You can't read the Bible, you can't read the Old Testament, and not pick up on the fact that God's people are a people who experience injustice. And sometimes they do injustices as well. We live in a world broken by sin. This is a reality of life. And so when Jesus uses this parable, he's not just saying it to a people whose life is cush. He's saying it to a people who are being dominated by the Roman Empire. They're in a police state. And the Romans can, at any time they want, walk into your home, rough people up, commonly take money for themselves. This is the world that God's people were living in. This is the world where it's not surprising somebody ceases to pray. They just give up. They say, I've been praying this for 45 years. And where is the Lord's answer? In the case of the children of Israel, when they were in Egypt, the answer was 439 years. And the Lord had set a date. And imagine being the person who gave up praying at 438. God sets the time and he has a purpose for all things. But here he's calling you, do not believe that the Lord is less invested in righteousness than you are. He is not less invested in righteousness, but he's a whole lot more mature in knowing how things will impact other things and to build for himself a story of his grace and his compassion in the world, a story of humbling humanity, allowing us to see our ugliness in the mirror at times. And we need that. The woman in verse three says, give me justice against my adversary. And maybe that's how you feel even this evening. You know that someone has wronged you and you don't know why God has not given them their comeuppance. In the Psalm, Psalm 119, you hear something similar. In fact, it's pretty audacious. And in prayer, if there is a time when you can speak just from the gut, it would be prayer and the Lord can take it. If he can use a Jonah, he can tolerate your prayers. Doesn't excuse sin, but it means don't let the fear you're going to say something wrong stop you from praying. But Psalm 119, verse 126, and this is the New Living Translation, I think does a beautiful job in rendering this. It says, Lord, it is time for you to act, for these evil people have violated your instructions. Can you imagine informing the Lord? Lord, you're late. You're behind schedule and doing righteousness and justice, God. But all of us at times feel that way in our prayers. God, why have you not? And the Lord has built into his design not only justice, but the yearnings of his people for it. He desires the yearning as well as the conclusion. And so he's built this in, and Jesus calls us to look on God as our faithful advocate. Look at verse 7. Will not God give justice to his elect, his chosen from eternity in Christ unto all benefits, for whom Jesus shed his very blood? Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. It may not seem speedy to you, but this is the God who creates geological time spans, who provides stars with abounding fuel that if he willed, he could let them go a long time and the light doesn't burn out. God doesn't dwell in time. He has no beginning and no end. These are frameworks, concepts, structures that help us try to relate to him. 
But the life that he's called the believer to is everlasting. Everlasting. Imagine you take one coffee bean and you set it right here on the pulpit and then you add to that nine. Now you got 10. And you add to that 90 more. Now you got 100. And you add to that 900. Now you got 1,000. And you keep adding coffee beans and coffee beans and coffee beans. At what point would you reach everlasting coffee beans? Never. The life that God has promised to us in Jesus Christ will extend without limit that way. And the duration of time before those who have done evil are either brought to reconciliation in Jesus Christ who paid for their sins, and so you need to let go of your bitterness at them because God is not bitter at them, or they are going to die and come to judgment. And that's going to happen within a lifetime, which is this big, compared to that. And yet we are so inclined to put the Lord into our time scale. It'd be like our dogs, if you have pet dogs. And a dog is a lifespan of 7 to 14 years, maybe. Maybe yours is that freak dog lived to 16. But even then, if the dog then thought, well, my master has the same lifespan. No, <laughs> the master doesn't. And our master, our heavenly master, has our perfect good in mind. And so the Lord causes us then to look at these obstacles because he very much desires for you to receive the benefits that come through prayer. God has ordained both the ends and the means. The book of James says it very plainly. You have not because you ask not. Sometimes people who have a solid grasp of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God kind of taint that text. You have not because the Lord has not ordained it. In a sense, that's true and orthodox, but that's not what that text says. You have not because you ask not. Or when you ask, you ask amiss, desiring that you might spin it upon your flesh. You have not because you ask not. And when the Lord says ask, this is what we would call a, a perfect participle. You keep asking. Not like a building permit, you filed it back in January and you wait 20 years and then you find out, all right. You know, and if you go into inquire, they say, oh, we'll tell you at the right time. Prayer is persistent. God calls us to that. Now, there's one idea that we have not touched on, and by way of conclusion, we'll touch only very briefly. Why does the Lord desire that you would persist in prayer? Why does the Lord want that every time you feel freshly anxious about something, or it comes back to your mind, that you would make it again a matter of prayer? Why not that you just once lay it before him. Why isn't that faith? You know, I've got great faith. I just pray once. I remember a pastor, I can't believe it, a pastor when I was maybe 19, 20 years old, telling me that he prays for things one time. And then his prayer is, God, you've got it. What? But that was his idea. That's great faith. I left it in the hands of the Lord. The Lord, however, throughout Scripture, calls us to exactly the opposite. As often as it comes back to your mind, the Lord wants to hear you pray again. He wants you to be that toddler who comes up and tugs. Not rude, but reminding, reminding. Dad, I want this. I yearn for this. Why has the Lord ordered it this way? There are many different reasons, but here are just a few to think of. One is to bring you through a refining process, a humbling process. I think many of you already know what I'm going to say here. In the process of praying for something, not for a little bit, for a long bit, 
often we discover we do not care about things so deeply as we thought we did. How many of us have at different times thought that we would try running long distances? And then you start and you discover, I'm not as interested in going far as I thought. And there's something very similar with prayer, where you think, I'm going to pray about this. And you tell somebody, I'm going to pray about that. And they say, yeah, for the next four years, I'm probably going to be battling cancer. And I'm, that's not just a physical condition. That's a whole spiritual condition, too. All the fear, all the everything that goes with it. And you say, I'm going to pray for you. And you start praying, but then at some point you leave off. And they, you still think of them, but you no longer pray for them. In that process, the Lord often humbles us to realize, I, I don't care as much as I thought I did. But that's an opportunity to then go deeper and ask the Lord that the prayer changes. God, give me a deeper heart. And we find it's kind of like going up one mountain, but then once you get to the top of this lower mountain, you see a much higher mountain that was obscured by the first. You discover what was merely a natural burden, and then you see the heavenly burden, God's burden. And it isn't until you've been praying for a while that you really begin praying. It's common to say of old, pray until you have prayed. Because it's not uncommon that the first 10, 15 minutes are really just like throwing darts in the dark, waiting until there's prayer, that you are at the feet of the Lord, casting a burden upon him. And so it's a process of humbling. Second, it brings you into deeper participation and identification with Jesus Christ. Christ persists in prayer. John chapter 16 and 17, Jesus is in the garden the night before he's going to be crucified. And for years, he's been preparing his disciples for this night. And they go to sleep. And they are just like us. He chose people that would help us know that he loves people like us. But he says to them several times, stay up with me. Watch with me. And they go to sleep. And it's in this process that the Lord, by calling us to wait a long time for some of the things that he desires to give us. And it's never your right to choose to believe that he does not desire to give you things until he's made it clear. He is leading us on to an identification, a gratitude towards Jesus that he persists. Our long waiting for certain things should bring us back to the fact that Christ has, since the beginning, since Adam's fall, been at work in interceding. He is the mediator from the beginning, even before he's incarnate. He is at work for you. And we go into that and grow in gratitude, not just humility, but grow in joy as you discover the love of God that brought you to faith. And then finally, to prepare you, even as I say there, for genuine gratitude when the Lord grants the things that we seek. There is a great blessing that I know many of us have experienced a greater blessing in having had to wait for good things. Maybe it was related to a spouse or a friend, somebody that you finally feel like you connect with on a deep level. Or maybe it was waiting for a certain vocation and you started in one avenue and you went this way and it took you 10 years to change track and there are all these obstacles along the way and then you finally get there and you go, God, thank you. There were so many times I didn't think it was going to happen and you've had mercy on me. The Lord delights in these things. But this then brings us finally to verse eight, and we'll close in prayer. Hear what Jesus asks, and I put it to you as a question. Nevertheless, that is, having said all of these things and given you all these encouragements, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find you persisting in faith? Will he find you still asking those things 
over which you don't yet know his answer, but you believe that he's good. Wherever you're at, know that he's ready and willing to receive us even now. Let's go in prayer.